Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemust, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm horse enthusiast Mike Emmel, and I am very excited to be joined for tonight's episode by the guy who really ties the room together, Anthony Badger. Anthony, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back, man. How have you been? I've been good. That is great to hear, and uh, I am incredibly excited for this episode, a little bit outside of your wheelhouse, but you being... I think a, a critical giant uh, among the hosts of this podcast. I think this is going to be a great show, man. I hope so. So welcome back to you, man, and welcome back to everybody listening. It is extremely far out to have all of you here, and we hope that you enjoy the show. If you do, remember that you can check out all of our other episodes at our website at cinemus.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. And for daily interactions and updates on show content, you can follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. You just got to search for Cinemusts. So, Anthony, you and I are here today to debate the must-see status of two movies that some might say are essential viewing. But to do that, we're going to need the help of everybody who's listening, because two people alone cannot decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. So to build that essential cinema list, we need all of you listening to visit this episode's post at cinemust.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Anthony, would you mind mixing yourself a white Russian and explaining what the criteria for those three categories are? So the first category is Cinema Must. This is a must-see movie that we think everybody should see and can enjoy. Cine Trust is a movie where your mileage may vary. It's, it's different for everybody depending on their particular investment in the particular film. And a Cine Bust is just garbage and we don't like it and no one will. Excellent. Nicely done, man. Thank you. And before we offer our take on which of those categories that we believe today's films belong in, we first need to reveal which category our listeners have decided last episode's movies deserve. Did the inspiring chronicles of monarchal duty, The Lion King, and The King's Speech obtain official must-see status? Let's find out right now. So it is my delight to welcome back into the studio this evening the host of our last episode, Her Royal Excellency, Amanda Emmel. Amanda, welcome back. Round of applause, everybody. Yeah, give her a hand. <laughs> How are you, love? Good. I'm so glad to share these comments from these movies that we did a podcast on. I know. It was a really fun podcast talking about what I consider to be your all-time favorite movie, 1994's The Lion King, capitalizing on the recent release of the quote-unquote live-action remake, which um, we have yet to see for the better is what it's sounding like uh, based on what our friends and fans are telling us. Yes. Um, so we're here to talk about 1994's The Lion King along with The King's Speech. We had a great discussion on them debating their merits as must-see movies, but uh, we of course have left it to you guys to decide if they will make the list of essential cinema. So Amanda, you have the all-important results sheet there. Would you mind sharing how the listeners have voted for The Lion King and The King's Speech? Yes, Lion King was voted a cinema must. All right. Yeah. 82% of the votes were a cinema must, 9% were a cinema trust, and 9 haven't seen it. You nine people, go watch it. That, uh, that 9% surprises me. So yeah, a really high recommendation to you 9% who haven't seen it. Go check out 1994's The Lion King. Uh, so we kind of figured that one was a, a no-brainer. Uh, how about the King's Speech, though, Amanda? You and I were, were kind of on the fence on how that one was going to do. Also, a Cinemust. No kidding. Yes, 55% of you who voted voted a Cinemust. That's pretty good. 9% said Cinetrust, 
and 36% haven't seen it. Okay, so a little more wider margin, people who hadn't seen it. So we were definitely drawing the Disney crowd for this poll. Um, sure. But that's fantastic. No, thank you everybody for those votes. And for everyone who hasn't seen these movies, now are officially movies that your peers consider must see. So we'll get them on the essential cinema list. And uh, yeah, that's a recommendation from not only us, but everybody who listened and voted. Uh, but like you said, Amanda, we got some pretty good comments on why people consider these must-see movies, so we want to rattle those off real quick to show our appreciation. We're going to go over Lion King comments first, um, and the first comment for Lion King is from Cinema Recall Podcast. Um, they commented on Instagram and said, The Lion King, the 94 version, is a cinema must. The animation is gorgeous, and it still looks good today. A lot of humor and drama are in this talking animal fable, and it's good. If you think the 2019 version is superior superior over the 94 because it's more photorealistic, I respect your opinion, but I can't take you seriously as a film critic. That's pretty good. Um, I'm not hearing a lot of film critics that are saying that, though, so I think you guys are in the green there, Cinema Recall. Thanks for the comment, guys. Um, from Twitter, our friend Peterson Hill has said, The Lion King is a definite cinema must, one of the great animated films. Wonderful songs, excellent hand-drawn animation, and a truly powerful story that is still very accessible for kids. Truly one of Disney's best films. I 100% agree. We have a Cinetrust voter who says, Just never bought the hype on this one. Boo. <laughs> Just kidding. You can have your own opinion. Also, it's about time Disney started giving credit where it's due. Um, for example, Kimba the White Lion and Hamlet. Yeah. So I think Disney's pretty forthcoming in, in crediting Hamlet for Lion King. I don't think that one's a secret, but they definitely um, need to stop this charade of like, we didn't know anything about Kimba when we started. Um, no one's buying it, Disney. Just admit it. You, you made a great movie, but admit that you ripped off Kimba. Um, that, that, very, that comment very well could be host of today's episode, Anthony Badger. He has never uh, really bought into the hype of the Lion King either. But this is a mystery vote, so we'll never know for sure. Uh, our last comment on The Lion King comes from a Cinemust voter who says not only is The Lion King a great loose adaptation of Shakespeare, but represents the 90s Disney renaissance extremely well. Great songs, beautiful animation, and a well-told story dealing with important life lessons and struggles that adults and kids can relate to make it a Cinemust. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. On a positive note. Um, so those are the comments we got for The Lion King. Thank you, guys. We got a couple more to read off for The King's Speech. Amanda, what are, what are film lovers saying about The King's Speech? Uh, Peterson Hill commented and said, The King's Speech is a cinema must because I think that nearly every person I know could and would want to watch it. There's nothing that makes it a truly great film, but it is one of the most inherently watchable films out there. I have a comment on this, but I think I'll save it for another comment that's coming up later. Um, on Instagram, Hattie Goes By has said the number one reason everyone should see it, Colin Firth and Helena Bonham Carter. I am with her. They are an adorable on-screen couple. Cinemust Voter said Firth and Rush are just too damn good, despite the movie being a bit cliche-laden and pure Oscar bait. And the last comment comes from an anonymous Cinemust Voter who says, The King's Speech is one of those movies that's great not because it's grandeur and groundbreaking, but because it so perfectly nails the bread-and-butter aspects of filmmaking, i.e. acting, writing, direction, etc., that it becomes not only extremely moving and fun to watch, but is also a textbook example of how to make a great film. A cinema must for anyone wanting to make their own films or to understand what goes into making a great movie. So the comment I had, uh, this ties into what Peterson Hill said, is that this seems to 
go back to the dilemma that you and I had that the King's speech did seem to fit. I think we called it like that baseline level of like what mm-hmm. a good movie should be. And then there's not much about it that like pushes it beyond that. And we felt that maybe we were too kind on it, giving it a sin of must, that maybe that was a, more of a sin of trust territory. But it looks like uh, we were in the right that the King's speech seems to fit like the bare minimum for what a sin of must movie is because it's good. Everybody would want to watch it, but there's not a lot that puts it like up into the upper echelon. It's good. It's not great. Yeah. Uh, I'm very happy with these results, though. Uh, I, like I said, I'm a big fan of the King's speech. I think in some ways it, it goes beyond the, the pure Oscar bait that, uh, that it's accused of being. And it looks like uh, other people agree with us. So I think that these came out uh, pretty great. How do you feel about the results, Amanda? I agree, of course, because that's the way I voted them. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming in to read those comments. Thank you all who voted and left those comments. We really appreciate the time it takes. We know voting can take, you know, 10 seconds just to punch in your votes, but that extra time it takes to leave comments on why you feel the way you do about these movies is always appreciated, is always appreciated, and we love reading them off. So thank you guys so much. And uh, Amanda, again, I want to thank you for hosting the last episode. It was a ton of fun to talk about both those movies with you. A 100% Cinema's induction rating. I wonder if you have any final words to say on The Lion King or The King's Speech before we put this one to bed. Um, nope, I think we covered it all. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was an absolute pleasure, babe. You're always welcome back to the show. I'll get you back as fast as I can. And one last time, thank you guys again for voting. Um, we are going to lock these poll results in for now, but with this new episode comes the new opportunity to vote up to two movies onto this list of essential cinema. So make sure you go and visit this episode's post at cinemas.com to cast your votes on if either, both, or neither of tonight's movies are going to make that list. That poll is going to be open until August 12th, so you got two weeks to check the movies out and uh, give us your opinions on them. So without further ado, I won't delay us any longer. Let's get back to the episode proper. I'm going to kick it back over to Anthony, who is going to tell us what two films we're discussing tonight and why we chose them. Uh, This week we're going to cover The Big Sleep and The Big Lebowski, which we chose because the names are very similar and they are both technically detective stories sort of film noir-esque and one is from the golden age of film noir let's dive into it man so for anybody who's new to the show we are going to take a couple of minutes to go totally spoiler free to give our general impressions of these movies basically going to try to sell these movies to anybody who's never seen them or never heard of them So Anthony and I are going to give a little plot summary, and we are going to vote each movie into one of the three categories that he described, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, and we're going to give three reasons apiece for why we voted the way that we did. From there, we'll issue out a spoiler warning, talk about each movie in turn, to back up those things we said. Uh, So let's dive into it. We always go oldest movie first, so from 1946, Howard Hawks, The Big Sleep, as you mentioned, Anthony, one of the classic film noirs, and I have got the plot summary for it. So in The Big Sleep, Humphrey Bogart plays Philip Marlowe, who's a private eye in 1950s Los Angeles, who is hired by the wealthy General Sternwood, played by Charles Waldron, to unravel a web of entrapment and blackmail surrounding his seductive young daughter, Carmen, played by Martha Vickers. Investigating the case, Marlowe gets lost in an ever-expanding network of small-time hoods, femme fatales, and plenty of corpses, all the while never certain whether the eldest Sternwood daughter, Vivian, played by Lauren Bacall, will be a help or a deadly hindrance. Anthony, I'm very excited. We, like I mentioned, a genre, film noir is not a genre you and I have t- uh, touched base on a lot, so I don't really know where you're coming from. How are you going to vote for The Big Sleep? You know, I'm not one to bag on classic films, and I actually really like film noir, but for me, this is a cinebust. Ooh, a, not a recommendation to anybody, huh? No. 
All right, man. Can you give me three reasons why? Yeah, I mean, my first reason is just that this is an extremely complicated plot. It's hard to kind of make sense of. Uh, the second one is that this film was heavily influenced by censorship of the time, a lot of studio interference, making a lot of it just downright incomprehensible. And my last reason is that there's just simply way better examples out there from the golden age and later on, whether we're talking Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity, Chinatown, you know, take your pick. Uh, but I just think there's better examples of the genre out there that you're going to get a lot more out of and that are probably better made. Very interesting. So a lot of that is a reaction to, I think, they're almost not critiques of the movie. Like when you talk about The Big Sleep, when you read anything that's about like why The Big Sleep is a classic or a great movie, they address a lot of those things you said, that it's an overly confusing plot, that it's um, contrived and overly comp complicated, that it's a, a product of heavy studio meddling. You know, it's kind of like almost at the end of the, the golden age of the studio system where they controlled everything. So this will be uh, really interesting to talk about. How do you vote for The Big Sleep? Man, so I'm actually going to go Cinetrust on this one. This, to me, is not a movie I'm going to recommend to everybody, but um, a lot of those things I just talked about, I don't know if I, like, I was just in the right mood or something. Like I hadn't watched film noir in a while. But I think like I kind of fell into this movie's spell, but thinking about it, I'm still not sold on it being a must-see movie, but I do think it's, it's really great. I think that if you're any kind of enthusiast for um, classic studio movies, for film noir, I, I think it's definitely a movie for you, but I, I can really sympathize with your third point about there being a ton of better examples. Like, in, in no reality does this movie crack like my top 10 film noirs, even just if we're counting just the classics. Like, I'm with you, Double Indemnity, Touch of Evil out of the past, um, I think are all better, but I, I still think that there's a lot to like in uh, The Big Sleep, and I found myself like thinking, you know, if Criterion put out like an edition of this, I'd totally buy it, like I'd be way on board. Um, so my three reason, my three official reasons for Cinetrust is a little different. Usually when I do a Cinetrust, I've got two positive reasons, and then like the third one that kind of just like drags the rest of it down. For this, I've managed to have three kind of positive reasons, but they're also all kind of backhanded in their way. The first reason I'd recommend this movie to, to some people, to genre fans, is that penultimate snappy film noir dialogue, that, that really uh, high talk, or fast talk and high pants kind of thing. I, I think that there's not too many movies that beat out the, the repartee in this movie. I, I was really just giddy with it, watching Humphrey Bogart go toe-to-toe -to -toe with all the hoods and with Lauren Bacall. I think it's one of the, the supreme pleasures of the movie, but it's not quite like the best that the genre has to offer. My second reason is. This is a classic noir film, but it's, it's surprisingly experimental. So, you know, other movies from this era, you think like movies like The Big Sleep should define what film noir is as a genre. And watching it, I found like it's really tweaking with the formula a bit. And your mileage may vary on whether that's a hindrance or a help. But I, at any rate, I find it really interesting. And I thought that it was something uh, that does make the movie worth seeing again to genre fans or people who are into classic movies just because it's not your standard film noir movie that you would see in something like Maltese Falcon. But my, and my third reason is I do think that your enjoyment of this movie hinges on how into the superstardom of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall you really are, because the movie is made to capitalize on the chemistry they had from To Have and Have Not. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff we'll go into in spoilers about, you know, their lurid affair in real life informing, you know, the, the sexual tension that's in the movie. 
Um, so I think that that comes at the expense of the story, but if you are into that kind of glamour, again, like this era of Hollywood, I think that this is a, a monumentally great representation of that era. Um, so yeah, like, like you said, your mileage is, is just going to vary based on how much you're willing to let that component of the making of a movie influence how the movie itself stands up. So those are our three reasons. Neither of us a cinema must on The Big Sleep, but I think we're going to differ enough to make it pretty dang interesting in spoilers. But before we do that, man, let us skip ahead to The Big Lebowski from 1998. Anthony, can you tell us what that movie's about? Yeah, so The Big Lebowski stars Jeff Bridges playing Jeffrey Lebowski, a.k.a. The Dude, which he goes by for the majority of the film. He's a middle-aged slacker in L.A. circa 1991 who is mistaken for a wealthy millionaire that shares his same name. After some thugs mistake his identity and break into his home, threaten him, and urinate on his rug, the dude gets unwillingly drawn into an extremely complicated missing persons case. The complicated ins and outs of that case lead him into an increasingly messy and dangerous situation. So, Mike, what do you vote for The Big Lebowski? Man, you know how I'm going to vote on this one, because you and I have uh, a shared history with this movie. The Big Lebowski is totally a cinema must. I think everybody's got to see this movie. It is... Uh, one of my absolute favorite Coen Brothers movies. It's one of my, it's honestly like one of my favorite three comedies of all time. I think it is so good on so many levels. So really hard for me to narrow it down to just three reasons why I think everybody should see it. But the ones that I came up with, uh, the first one is I think that this magnificently molds the components of film noir into farce. So The Big Lebowski is through and through a comedy. It takes a lot of the attitudes that we'll see even in The Big Sleep about how Things are overly complicated and don't make sense. And it turns that into this like outrageous farce that somehow works and I think is an even bigger masterpiece than so many of the film noir movies that it's um, paying homage to. Uh, my second reason is I think it's the ultimate cult movie. And I know some people could fight me on this. Some people could say like, no, The Room is or Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, that's fine. To me, The Big Lebowski is the real ultimate cult movie. I think that sharing a love of this movie with other people who get it. It's one of the most positive, like cinematic experiences I've had. Like, I just love talking to people who love the big Lebowski. And the third reason this one's really personal to me. I'm going to sing the praises of the entire cast for this, but John Goodman, man, I, Walter Sobchak, I think might be like one of my top 10 favorite movie characters of all time. And John Goodman is so freaking good in this movie. Like I can't believe it. Sometimes I watch it and I'm just like, how is a performance make me this happy and make me like feel this many emotions when it's such a again a farcical character um so i really just wanted to give john goodman a shout out as walter sobchak to me he's easily a third of the reason why i recommend this movie to absolutely everybody uh so how about you man i, I i'm dying to hear you make it official yeah you know i'm voting cinemust for this as well yeah, buddy uh my three reasons are that uh not only is this sort of a farce and a parody of what film noir and detective films are but it actually is fairly successful at also being one if mm. that makes sense oh yeah uh, and 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 plays out a very satisfying kind of mystery my second reason is just the expert writing of the coens i think this is for me their best written film uh similar to what you were saying about big sleep i think the dialogue here is extremely snappy and offbeat but also really clever in the way that certain lines of dialogue continually kind of make this uh perpetual return in kind of increasingly silly ways. Mm -hmm. And then my third reason is just simply, it's funny. This is a flat out hilarious movie. And like you, I think this is easily in my top three comedies. If I could poke you just out of my own curiosity, what else kind of like shares the, the trinity of comedies with it? 
Uh, for me, I mean, this might uh, dampen my overall, <laughs> the value of my overall opinion. But for me, I, I like uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and I like Napoleon oh, yeah. Dynamite. Oh, nice. Okay. No, that's sort, of, sort of absurdism. No, yeah, I, it, it all kind of like fits a theme. Uh, yeah, it's definitely going to dampen you because I think the other two for me would be uh, Young Frankenstein and Dr. Strangelove. So I'm going to go a little more highfalutin. Yeah, I appreciate highfalutin you being indeed. you. <laughs> I love I love Pee Wee, man. I would love to do an episode on that someday. I think it's a crime that that movie's not in the thousand and one movies book. Um, much like the Big Lebowski is no longer in any subsequent editions. It's it's been in and out, but as of the current edition, it's not. And um, that upsets me, man. I I can't imagine having to boot that out of out of the list to make room for some of the more contemporary stuff. I think the Big Lebowski is an absolute classic, which I'm sure we will get into. So yeah, let's. Uh, I I don't want to hold this from getting deep into the discussion with spoilers, but uh, before we do that, are there any other things completely spoiler-free that you would like to say to make your cases for either or both movies? Uh, no, let's let's get into the spoilers for me. How about you? No, I, I think we we've done enough said. I think our reasons uh, I think our reasons stand to provide the intrigue desired. At least mine do, and I'm very intrigued by yours. So I'm dying to back them up, man. So let's get into spoilers and start talking about the big sleep. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Ah, you're a mess, aren't you? Hmm. I'm not very tall, either. Next time I'll come on stilts, wear a white tie, and carry a tennis racket. I doubt if even that would help. Now, this business of Dad's, think you can handle it for him? It shouldn't be too tough. Really? I would have thought a case like that took a little effort. Not too much. What will your first step be? The usual one. I didn't know there was a usual oh, one. Oh, sure there is. It comes complete with diagrams on page 47 of how to be a detective in 10 easy lessons, correspondence school textbook, and uh, your father offered me a drink. You must have read another one on how to be a comedian. You hear what I said about the drink? I'm quite serious, Mr. Marlowe. My father's not father... help yourself. All right, so I, th- I think the, the overarching thing we have to address first is the thing that always comes up with the big sleep, which is the plot. Uh, you know... Every essay, even if it's saying that this movie is like a film noir masterpiece, it's always got to address how no one can keep track of what's happening in the plot and how it doesn't matter, that everything is confusing and there's all sorts of dead ends and that's kind of the movie's charm. It sounds like that is not a part of the charm to you. You find this overly confusing and windy. So I kind of just want, using examples from the movie, you you to back up that point for why to you this is a hindrance where others see it as like, you know, that's, that's the big sleep's charm. Well, I'm I'm coming at this from a perspective of someone who's read the original Raymond Chandler novel that this film is based on, which I actually really, really like. It's probably one of my favorite books. Nice. And I think a hallmark of Raymond Chandler's work are these just overly complicated plots, most of which that have nothing to do with the actual main driving plot, which I, I think is smart when it plays out in literature. And I think they all kind of go places that are interesting thematically. Um, but in the adaptation process for this movie, a lot of these kind of side plots have been included that don't seem to really go anywhere that makes a lot of sense. And so you have to forgive me for my uh, the the book isn't as fresh on my memory as the film. But there are a lot of like side characters in the movie that, that Marlowe finds suspicious. There, there's an incident involving a car that gets driven into the river, mm-hmm. or, or I believe. And uh in the in the book, there's this whole thing involving it that uh, part of the reason that this is all suspicious and no one knows who all was involved in this 
is because some of the characters are actually closeted members of the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a lot of things like that, that that have been excised from the film that, that make the overcomplicated stuff superfluous to the pacing and to the point. Other than, I guess, just to illustrate kind of how you know, everybody's a suspect and this is a real seedy world or whatever, but um, it, it, it all feel, feels really flat to me, particularly when compared to things like Double Indemnity or Maltese Falcon, where that kind of uh, seediness and, par- and, and kind of uh, feeling of paranoia everywhere mm-hmm. sort of seem to actually like build the movie up rather than just be another dead end, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So the censorship thing brings up an interesting point. Um, I I don't know how you feel about this. I, I kind of love the Hayes Code in my own twisted way because I think that by having to bow down to like the ridiculous amount of censorship that they had to back in the, the 30s to the 50s, it kind of made them a lot more creative. And in some ways, like they got away with stuff that was like way worse and like way more suggestive than if they had just been able to say like, it's a porno shop, you know? Um, so I, to, to me, like, I, I kind of see where you're coming from. It sounds like you're saying this by, by glossing over that stuff and having to very heavily, almost subliminally imply certain relationships or motivations that it kind of undercuts those motivations. But I, I still think that, um, it works a lot in this movie because I still think that, um, you know, sex and death are kind of like the two driving forces that I think are just like bleeding out of every seam of this movie and i mean almost to a laughable degree sometimes like this this is really like one of the ultimate male fantasy movies you know in in la which is a gigantic city just every single place philip marlowe turns there's there's a beautiful woman who's running the show and she wants him more than anything in the world you know bookstore owners librarians cab drivers like stands out in particular yeah that sort of thing (laughs) yeah but so it's like um all that stuff i think is is kind of what makes the the movie endearing to me because I actually really like the bookstop the bookshop scene. It to me honestly that's uh maybe something that holds us back from being a cinema must because I think that uh what what some people would say is a big reason why this movie's a classic is the Bogey and Bacall relationship that they're one of the big classic Hollywood couples um and the, and you know this is kind of their biggest movie you know to have and have not puts them on the map as a as a screen couple but then you know this movie turns them into an actual real life couple but to me like the the chemistry between them while good in so many places i don't think it's like ever better than like the tension that's between humphrey bogart and dorothy malone who plays the bookstop bookshop owner yeah i i i agree with that in fact um i've seen this movie before and i've, I've never been a big fan but on a on my most recent watch through i watched it with the group and i i sort of uh I sort of trusted the the audience I was with to just go along with it and not be as critical as I am. Mm-hmm. And even a lot of them were fans of, you know, of these leads. And it, it didn't matter because, like, the number one thing I kept hearing was that they did not understand what anyone was ever doing, nor <laughs> right. could they remember what the initial mystery that he's trying to solve even ever was. And to me, if you, if you don't understand the drive... And you're literally only like, what is what is the point of watching this movie, even if it's just because you like these actors and the way that they fill the role of these characters? 
what could you possibly be getting out of it? You know what I mean? Well, well, that's exactly all the reasoning behind my third point about how your your enjoyment is going to hinge on the superstardom of Bogey and Bacall. Because like to enjoy this movie, like like you say, like you can never keep track of like what he's supposed to be doing or like what the end goal is. But what you're there for is like, do you think it's cool when Humphrey Bogart is just a smart ass and super cool and always in control? And do you think it's cool whenever he and Lauren Bacall are just having their their sexy banter back and forth? Like if you can get into those two things, then I do think like the plot can be secondary and this can be a great movie because I think that they're both in top form in those respects. Like I, I think I do prefer Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon as a performance from Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart, but I still think that his iteration of Philip Marlowe is pretty good. I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I'd probably go with Elliot Gould from uh, Long Goodbye. And I like Dick mm. Powell in Murder My Sweet as well. Like, uh, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> Philip yeah. Marlowe is well represented in 1001 movies. He's got those three movies. I think he's in there more than Sherlock Holmes is. Yeah, one uh, of the great detectives. But um, yeah, exactly. Like you made my point. Like you, you've just got to be in on that. You've just got to be down with like. And then Humphrey Bogart goes to another place and acts cool, and then he goes to another place and acts cool. And if you're all right with that, then it's a great movie. But if you want to, you know, really flesh out like, oh, what's what's his motivation? There really isn't one because because Philip Marlowe in this iteration is, is really kind of a fully formed guy. He's very rarely out of his league. He's always in control. He always knows like what to do to get information. And um, I find that stuff enjoyable. I like that he knows when to be a tough guy. I know, like, he knows when to be demeaning. And I like that he knows when to put on sunglasses and push the brim of his hat up and annoy a, a pornographic bookstore owner. <laughs> and I mean, and I'll, and I'll give you that. Marlowe is a, is a great character for all of those reasons. And, and it is great how he is never, ever, ever in over his head. Or at least he never seems to feel that he is. Mm-hmm. But I think without comprehensible context, that doesn't really mean anything. And so it sounds like you're saying that had had the Hayes Code not gutted this movie and made them have to gloss over a lot of the more seedier elements of Raymond Chandler's novel, do you think that those motivations would have been clearer and make these characters fully fleshed enough for you to enjoy the film? Um, yes, but I think this is sort of where my third point comes into play, where I think there's just better examples of this elsewhere, because from at least for me, I don't find the direction or production value or anything else that makes film noir a, a you know codifiable genre really at its best here for me you know mm-hmm. I, I just think there's there's better places to look yeah. so what so yeah well i think it i think it would be more enjoyable i still don't think i'd say it's you know a must see for everybody or the you know the a big shining example of this genre well, I'd counter that with my second point about, um, you know, how experimental the movie is, that we we think of The Big Sleep as like one of the linchpins of film noir, yet, like you said, it, it goes against so many of the conventions of the genre that are laid down. And like you said, it's not a particularly visually striking movie. It is a lot more about character interaction. So we're losing a lot of the high contrast lighting. There's not a single Venetian blind in the yeah. thing. There's <laughs> multiple femme fatales. There's no voiceover. It's it's ditching a lot of these conventions of the, the film noir and the detective story. But I, I kind of, it's weird because in a way I find it exciting and in another way I find it disappointing because watching this movie, like I forgot how much I love film noir as a genre. Like after I watched Big Sleep, like I watched as many other ones as I possibly could because I was just loving all of the conventions and um, components of the genre. So I watched like Maltese Falcon. I tr- got pretty far into long goodbye and stuff like that. And it was like, I appreciated how much the big sleep was kind of trying to ignore and saying like, this isn't the same thing. It's not just going to be like 
the voiceover and everything. But at the same time, I was like, oh, I kind of miss that stuff, which is why that point for me is kind of like a backhanded thing because you can appreciate it for being different. But there is often that feeling that something's lacking. And I think that you get little gulps of it here and there. You know, I, I really like um, the expose of, of all the the seedy goings on in the back rooms, you know, that um, Geiger's bookstore is really just this laughably bad front for like a, a porno shop and that the, you know, the casino at Eddie Marr's house, you know, I really like it exploring like, oh, the, the, the nightlife of LA that's seedy and everybody is in on it. Everybody's got something in their closet. Yeah. I, I just, I just can't, I can't get behind that because I don't, I don't find that it's visually upheld and or bolstered in any way. And I'll add, I, I also don't think it's really audibly bolstered. I, I really, uh, if, did you notice the soundtrack is almost note for note, the soundtrack for King Kong? Well, I did notice it was Max Steiner, but um, I didn't notice note for note because I think we mentioned in King Kong, the King Kong episode you and I did, that Max Steiner really does have like one and a half scores. It's the exact, yeah, no, he, he reuses the same light motifs and everything. So I just I just don't think anything really draws attention to these details that you're talking about, um, because it really does seem like the film's main interest is just going, oh, look how cool Humphrey Bogart is. Yes. What a, no. what a fast talking man. <laughs> I'll totally agree with you there. Visually, it's it's far from uh, visually. It's, it's really just not that interesting. It's to me, it seemed just really made on the cheap. You know, because because everything, you know, circles back to Geiger's house. You know, we go back to Geiger's house like four times. Like you can tell like, oh, they're really reusing all the sets there. And I think we go to the Sternwood Manor a couple of times. It's an interesting movie in in terms of like the, the Jack Warner era of, of Warner Brothers, you know, because the movie is really famously held for a year so that Warner Brothers can release all of the war movies they have in the pipeline because World War II is about to end. So they want to get all their war movies out. So the Big Sleep was delayed a year, and we actually the the final release version is significantly different from the one that was released in '46 because I think it was Lauren Bacall's agent was the one who wrote the letter to Jack Warner that said, um, "You really need to fix this movie. You need to really capitalize on the chemistry she had with Bogart in To Have and Have Not. So you need to fix this scene. You need to add like two or three more." And uh, I wanted to ask you, which version of the the movie did you watch when you were prepping for the episode, the pre-release or the the final cut? I don't actually don't know which one I just watched. I, I have seen both and I noticed that there were things that were different. Uh, so I guess I would have seen the, the next or the, the later edition because there were scenes that I didn't remember. Did it have the, uh, the famous horse racing innuendo exchange? Did it? Wait, what, what is that? Um, it's the scene where Philip Marlowe and Vivian are meeting in the cafe and she's trying to pay him off to say it's done. And then they start talking about the horses and it's this, it's this complete um, oh, no, no, facade no, no. for how they're talking about sex. So you watched the pre-release version. Did it have um, them meeting in the, the district attorney's office to kind of like yes. sum up like what's happening? Okay, yeah, that's the, the pre-release version. That scene is actually cut for the final release. So it's oh. kind of funny that um, you know, there's a version of this movie that does address a lot of the overly confusing plots because it introduces scenes that kind of lay out what's happening. And I actually don't mind that scene. I think it's actually good to act as kind of like a roadmap to let you know where you stand halfway through the movie. And it's also fun to watch the private detective make his deal with the, the real cops. Um, but yeah, other, I, I got to agree with, um, you know, the, the agent. And I think even Raymond Chandler himself 
I, I think that a lot of the scenes they added between Bogey and Bacall do make the movie better. I think they're more subtly acted. There's, there's a little more, it's just a little steamier, which makes sense because I think by the time they got around to the reshoots, I think Bogart and Bacall had actually gotten married and it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a taboo affair anymore. Mm. But, um, yeah, that was one, that was one thing I, I found interesting is like, well, which, which cut of this movie is really the one that we're voting on. Mm. And, uh, so I, I guess I'm voting on the, the final cut and you, you'd seen the pre-release. I guess so. But it sounds like not, not much change. So that, that Nix is my next question. I was going to ask is like, do, do things that the pre-release version leaves in to kind of help roadmap out the plot. Does that do anything to assuage your, your concern about it being overly intricate? No, because while I appreciate it, it it still is extremely confusing. I think it also feels extremely uh, kind of futile in a way. I mean, we, we've kind of skirted around this idea. So, so I'll ask you, so much of this movie is just, is just a guy trying to make sense, you know, in a senseless world. And there's kind of a, kind of a sense that he can't straighten out everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And and this is going to become a, a major thing that I think we can talk about when we get to Big Lebowski. But in this film, do you think that that is something that is emphasized in a satisfying way? Or, you know, it, to, to use a popular phrase these days, is, is that a feature of this film or a bug? Because for me, I just found it mostly irritating how kind of pointless so much of it seemed. So, so is the question, can you restate it? I'm, I'm kind of just lost as to what I'm answering. Well, when we're talking about all these dead ends and and ultimately a lot of situations that Marlowe gets into where not only do they not lead anywhere, but he couldn't have fixed it anyway. Is that kind of pointlessness of so much of this? Do you find that that drags this down or is that the point or does that help the movie? Because I think there's a lot of film noir where that's the point. And I think it works extremely well. And I think in the case of The Big Lebowski, the pointlessness of so much of it is the joy of it. That's, that's mm. what is so satisfying. But I don't feel that way when I watch The Big Sleep. So as I'm getting in, I'm going to give you like a two-part answer because I think I'm answering both the intent of the filmmakers and then kind of just my personal take. So I, I am with you that I don't think it's the intent of the filmmakers to emphasize that. Like I, I think that whether it's because they felt that that kind of ethos was just well-worn territory in film noir, in which case, again, this might be experimental to say, ah, oh, we're not going to worry about that. Or whether it was just, you know, Howard Hawks notoriously just cutting away like anything thematically to be like, let me just deliver something that like audiences can enjoy. Right. Um, but, but at any rate, no, I don't, I don't think that it is emphasized particularly well or that it's even trying to. Um, I do think that, again, it is entirely about, creating this vehicle for bogey and bacall to just to deliver to the masses you know this this sensuous romance this this movie again that's just like oozing sex at all the seams but in in terms of just my personal reaction to it i i was kind of on board for it and i don't i don't know like your take on this i'm i'm one of the guys that kind of simplistically lays into the opinion like well if i like a performance or a character enough like i will forgive a lot like i won't worry a lot about the plot and maybe again, it was kind of just the headspace I was in for this viewing because I hadn't watched a film noir in a long, long time, especially not a classic one. This is the first classic film noir we've covered on Cinemusts. Um, I was kind of just so happy to be back in those conventions of the genre. And again, with that snappy dialogue that I was still digging it. I was still digging the pointlessness of it, even though I was recognizing that it wasn't really the point that the movie was trying to make on a thematic level. I was still very much along with um, 
kind of just a fun ride. I, again, I was totally okay with just like, here's Bogey walking in and being cool in this situation. And here he is being cool in this situation. And here's banter between him and Bacall. So I liked it, but I very much see what you're getting at, that it is definitely not as infused in this movie as it is in other uh, classics of the genre. Maybe somewhat to the film's credit, or at least to Howard Hawks's credit. You know, he is quite famous for making this type of movie. These just sort of meandering, sitting around, talking, hanging out kind of movies. Right, right. And but the thing is, is I think when I I think of his movies that work the best this way, uh, things like Rio Bravo, they're movies that aren't driven by a mystery or by um, an intense plot in the way that that this film is. So perhaps that accounts for my frustration here and, and why even emotionally it doesn't quite resonate with me the way that it it might for you or for others yeah and i I wouldn't even say emotionally again it was kind of like geeking out on genre just to be like you know and and really enjoying um the dialogue which is one of my points is like i was just so giddy with the the unreasonably fast exchanges between like you know the tough guy characters but i loved all the lines about like you know my my so many guns in this city and so little brains to use them and um the whole exchange with eddie mars about you know, suppose I can make it my business. So you wouldn't like it. The pay's too low and stuff like that. I, I ate it all up. What's what's your take on the dialogue of this movie? Do you think it's serviceable? I yeah, I can give you that, and and it is delivered well. But again, I just I don't think it's in the service of anything, which is sort of what irritates me about it. So maybe this is a difference between like how cool you are with indulgence in in this sort of thing again. Like because I'm context to me goes out the window if you can do like a good exchange like that like the ones between eddie mars or like a lot of the ones that bogey and bacall have i think i think the horse racing one is is a good one it's you know it's it's almost not even like a double entendre it's it's kind of crazy that like censors let stuff pass because it's not even like they're being subtle with what they're talking about which again is kind of what i like about the haze code that that exchange is so much more fun to watch than if they just were flat out talking about how they're going to bang each other and yet it's it's just so much worse than if they had just been able to say that outright. So, yeah, so I mean, that's and that's a genre convention. I think, you know, the, the dialogue of film noir, the hard boiled dialogue is always a big draw. And, and again, I think something like Double Indemnity, I'd, I'd probably give Touch of Evil this too. I think that those have better exchanges. Um, but to me, like this one is definitely up there in terms of of the snappy dialogue and the quip repartee and like the the characters at odds with each other, which is a big draw of the Bogey and Bacall romance itself that I, I think how it was sold was, you know, a lot of people didn't like working with Bogart because he was so insolent. And then what made Bacall so fun is she was like the only one that was more insolent than he was, which is definitely something that the Vivian Rutledge character has in The Big Sleep. Sure. And that's another thing I want to talk about just in terms of this experimentalism is um this movie is like way more of like a romance. I don't, think it quite gets into like screwball comedy territory but it has such a weirdly happy ending you know it it ends with the line like there's there's nothing you can't fix like like you were saying that philip marlowe kind of just writes all the wrongs and that's so weird to me for for a film noir because you're so used to you know doomed doomed romance and doomed love and that's maybe one of the, the elements where i say it's experimental but it doesn't really work for me like i don't even really admire it and maybe it's because again it's such a just calculated pre-packaged mood but um the the big question i want to ask is about the bogey and bacall romance itself is do you think can you can you appreciate or do you do you understand like why they are like the classic hollywood couple um no but 
I can't either. I, I admit that a lot of my opinion is, I mean, depending on your perspective, either informed or corrupted by how much I really liked Chandler's original novel, where that is not a romance. Like, she is not, she's a femme fatale through and through and not to be trusted. And where that led is something that I found really interesting and kind of intrinsic to that story. So getting used to the way it's been adapted is admittedly something that's always been kind of a difficult thing for me. And as much as we talk about that almost sort of smoldering chemistry that they have, I don't think that, you know, maybe maybe it's part of the 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 real life luridness of their affair or or maybe it's just the way that this material was adapted, but I I don't feel like the film ever makes it feel as stable as the ending wants you to think it is. For sure. It's I think it's a really ugly turn in the end when she uh helps him out. Yeah. It, it it kind of almost does seem to come out of nowhere and as I understand it, I've never read the book. I did like a, a skim of the summary. But in, in that scene where Mona Mars is confronting him and he's tied up, in the novel, Vivian's not even there, is she? Correct, yeah. Like, that's, that's all Mona, yeah. So that's, that's, again, this what you were talking about, Howard Hawks just kind of gleefully throwing out source material to make things work in a movie, which, honestly, I'm not going to fault on because I've praised plenty of other movies that have ditched, you know, something that works pretty well in the literature but works even better for the movie. But, yeah, again, like, that, that left turn that just all of a sudden turns this into like a super happy romance. Even though these two have like been building up a chemistry the whole movie, it just doesn't fit to the degree of like positivity that's in that relationship because everything about them is so confrontational, right? And for the movie to end with her saying like, nothing you can't fix, maybe I just haven't seen it enough to get like the, the subtext, but that just line drops right. dead to me. Like I can't understand how that's the final line of this iconic movie. And I'm and I'm wondering, you might know this, not, it might not even matter, but was that a decision on Hawks' part? Or is this something that is mandated by sort of what the Hayes Code was demanding, kind of these happy endings and and so on? Man, I don't know. That's it, what, What's tough about this movie is it's also one of those ones full of just, this story might be true, it might not, you know, like all, all, all the things about, um, you know, nobody nobody knows who killed Owen Taylor, the chauffeur. And, um, you know, Lee Brackett and William Faulkner call up Raymond Chandler and he's like furious. He's like, read the book. It's in there. And supposedly he called them back a couple of days later after he'd reread it and was like, I don't have any idea. Like, you know, Raymond Chandler didn't know his own story or didn't know who killed Owen Taylor in his own story. And it's kind of like, ah, uh, you know, that that sounds like it sells good copy, but I don't know if like I necessarily buy it. But it's the same with, you know, impossible to tell how much of. Everything is Hawks meddling, or whether it's Jack Warner or it's the Hayes Code. And I mean, it's a movie just beset with all sorts of um, production problems because it's in the middle of Humphrey Bogart's impending divorce because of his love affair with Lauren Bacall, which makes him late, miss entire days of shooting. So I, it's really, really difficult to say. In, in a way, I think it's kind of a miracle this movie's as good as it is, considering like the chaos which it's born out of. Like, right. It's born out of either like complete chaos like that or just like overly strict control on, on the the teams of the sensor or the studio heads. You know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, to, to me, like whenever a movie can escape from that and be like serviceably good, like still be a good time. I, I think maybe that's also contributing to me giving it like some points. Sure. And I guess I mean, this might as well be my final thought on the film, but 
whether for good or for ill, and, and clearly in my case, it's for ill, this movie doesn't seem to stand uh, separate from the context that it was made in. No. Yeah, and no, that, you're... That, I mean, for me, that irritates me. But like you said, that is a, a draw for many people, so... Yeah, exactly. No, it, it, this one really is um, so much more subjective than a lot of movies that we talked about on the show, because, yeah, every... <laughs> Every single column that's going to call this out is like one of the great movies of the 40s or great film noir. Like everything always comes back to the the context in which it's made. It's it's so fueled by what's going on behind the scenes, which is often I mean, I'll, I'll admit, like, it's pretty interesting stuff. Like, I'm not going to say, like, it doesn't matter because it, it really is juicy stuff. But, yeah, when you when we're trying to consider, like, why does this movie stand the test of time? And you have to think about, well, like, what about the movie itself? <sighs> You know, it's not there. It, it, I think it's a serviceable film noir. I, I kind of understand why it has stood out as a classic of the era. But like you said, I think that it is just surrounded on all sides by movies that are so much better because they do escape their context and they still just play amazingly well on their own merits. Right. Yeah, man, I, I, I stand by my, my cine trust. I really enjoy watching the movie. I think it's a fun time. But you are totally right that so much of that is contextual and it is about how much you're willing to buy into the bogey Bacall stardom, you know, this, this age of Hollywood, you, you really have to be almost kind of like a, a lover of film from this era. I can't see this playing particularly well to somebody who kind of goes in blindly to it, where I could see something like Double Indemnity or Maltese Falcon or Touch of Evil really playing well to that type of person. Right, right. That, that's my perspective anyway. Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty with you. I'm, I'm a little more positive just because I had such a fun time with the movie. I enjoyed, um, I, I kind of enjoy the unfathomability of it um, because, again, I'm, I'm very cool with it just being about Humphrey Bogart being awesome and then he and uh, Lauren Bacall just being so sultry. So that's where I'm going to give it point. It's a good time, especially if you're a classic movie buff, but uh, this is not going to make cinema must for me. So I'm very excited to see how listeners are going to vote for it and, and more excited for... Um, you know, if they give us reasons for why they vote it, because if, if someone's going to do cinema must, I'd be very interested to see how much of it, like you're saying, is entirely about the context or if uh, there really is something within the film itself that still speaks to modern audiences. Me too. Absolutely. Was there anything else you'd like to say about The Big Sleep? No, sir. Well, why don't we mix ourselves up another, another round of Caucasians and get talking about The Big Lebowski? All right. It's high and he, dude, as the ex used to say. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? What the fuck are we going to tell Lebowski? Huh? Oh, him. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what exactly is the problem? Oh, the problem is... What do you mean? What's the... Th- there was no... We, d- we didn't... Uh... <laughs> They're going to kill that poor woman, man. What the fuck are you talking about? The poor woman, that poor slut kidnapped herself. Come on, dude, you said so yourself. Man, I said I thought she kidnapped herself. You're the one who's so fucking certain. That's right, dude. 100% certain. Say, post to the next round for the tournament. Donnie, shut the fuck up. When do we play? Saturday. Saturday. Well, I have to reschedule. Walter, what am I going to tell Lebowski? I told that fuck down at the league office. Who's in charge of scheduling? Walter. Burkhalter. I told that crowd a fucking thousand times I don't roll on Shabbos. Walter. They already posted it. Well, they can fucking unpost it. Who gives a shit? 
They're gonna kill that poor woman, man. What am I gonna tell Lebowski? Come on, dude. Uh, eventually she'll get tired of her little game and, you know, wander on back. Yeah. How come you don't roll on Saturday, Walter? I'm Shomer Shabbos. What's that, Walter? Yeah, and in the meantime, what do I tell Lebowski? Saturday, Donnie, is Shabbos, the Jewish day of rust. That means I don't work. I don't drive a car. I don't fucking ride in a car. I don't handle money. I don't turn on the oven. And I sure as shit don't fucking roll! Sheesh. Shomer Shabbos! Walter, how am I going to... Show her fucking show. Oh, fuck. That's it. I'm out of here. Oh, come on, dude. All right, man. So the first thing I got to dive into is, is the very first thing we talked about with Big Sleep, but you talked about how this is easily going to translate over. We, we just spent a half hour talking about the Big Sleep and how the intricate plot, like how nothing makes any sense and is ultimately meaningless, is, is a deterrent for, for you and for a lot of people. And you mentioned, like, the Big Lebowski is no different, that there's so many just red herrings and dead ends and everything is ultimately pointless. But we were so enthusiastic about that with Big Lebowski. So I, I first want to talk about, like, why does Big Lebowski get away with this stuff where it fails in the big sleep? The fact that it's a comedy and somewhat of a parody helps, obviously. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and, and really kind of puts you in a different mindset. But I think the other thing is that Big Lebowski, almost everything about it is bolstering that point that you know every all the characters are weird none of them are as invested in this as they probably should be or they're invested in the wrong aspect of it and, and that's sort of the point i mean the dude himself is the ultimate slacker and he wants nothing to even do with anything that's even going on in fact for the main even though he's the main character he's the least driving force out of anything right in the whole movie <laughs> um and i really i mean like i said that's the core point point of this movie whereas I, I at least for me i don't feel that that's what the big sleep is about but. right so something that you said when we were talking about the big sleep is actually clicking here with me that you you said that you know the big sleep we talked about like that's not the intention that the meaninglessness of it is is a recurring motif but it just isn't really trying to say that the way other film noirs are and i'm i'm wondering that if the big sleep had been able to commit to an almost meaner outlook, to, to a more nihilistic outlook on that kind of idea, if it would succeed, because like you're saying, where Big Lebowski succeeds with almost the same viewpoint, it's just kind of a more optimistic take on the same material. That, you know, at the end of the movie, the ultimate mantra is the dude abides. After all this crazy shit has gone down, it's, it's still just like you said, the ultimate slacker, easygoing, life is life. And that's, you know, that's a core concept of film noir. And, you know, in film noir, it's usually like, that comes after, you know, the femme fatale has been murdered and, you know, the detective has lost this woman that he could have grown to love. And, and it fits just so seamlessly into this ridiculous comedy and it's the exact same idea, but there's something kind of sweet about the way Big Lebowski handles it. Yeah, in, in, in so many ways, I think Big Lebowski commits to everything that the big sleep doesn't. Even, even if we take um, the femme fatale angle, since, since we've mentioned that a few yes. times, the... The uh, the big sleep you mentioned that kind of that hard left turn where oh it's a romance now and and everything's mm. really great and and Big Lebowski has kind of a similar moment in its his in the, the relationship between the dude and uh, oh what's her name Maud and Maud uh, where suddenly their relationship uh, turns somewhat romantic but it ultimately goes nowhere and <laughs> and just kind of further emphasizes that whole point that everything he thought he was doing is not what he was doing. What that relationship was is not what it was. 
and uh and 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 that's just really really great yeah and and again to kind of just the the great thing about the dude is that ability to to kind of shrug it off and and move on and i like you know that the movie even though it's a line that walter has and not the dude this this recurring line of fuck it let's go bowling is is it oh, is yeah. kind of like a, a light joke but as it goes throughout the movie it kind of becomes like this really impactful line of dialogue that is kind of laying out the the movie's attitude towards like all the the, the weirdness and all this even the suffering that's gone on yeah um <laughs> i know we're kind of being a little scattershot here but oh yeah no let's let's do it in a movie like this you can't help it yeah no the uh again to compare it to big sleep philip marlowe he's always in these like crazy situations but he's always playing it cool he always has it under control and in big lebowski we kind of get the uh polar opposite ends of that same spectrum in all these situations there's always crazy things and the dude is either mostly apathetic but meanwhile his friend walter uh john goodman is thinks he's in control he's he's playing it very much like he's the <laughs> one in charge he never is although and, they come and, out, although they always come out on the other side relatively unscathed at least those two characters do yeah oh rest in peace donnie yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's that's one of these things that I think I zeroed in on so early in the movie talking about how this is molding all the components of film noir into farce is that snappy dialogue. You know, we can feed this into your point about the expert writing, but the, the very first scene with with the rug pissers it is really out of like that detective story that the dude still has like that cool detached sarcasm when uh, when the guys are beating him up. And he's, you know, where's the money, Lebowski? And, and he has that great line after he's been drowned in the toilet of like, it's it's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. Like, that's a line that could have yeah. come out of a Sam Spade or a Philip Marlowe. And the the obviously you're not a golfer line is so good. But they've made it this joke. But it's like, it's not even really like a shift. It's not even like the complete opposite of what your stereotypical film noir would do. Like, it's exactly what your stereotypical film noir would do. And the situation isn't even that different. But somehow the Coens have tweaked it into this way that it is just almost, it's its complete own animal. Yeah. And that's why I say as farcical and hilarious as it is, this film is extremely successful at being a classic LA noir detective story. Like at the same time, it so is satisfying was, on all these levels, at least for me. I, yeah. No, it so seems to be, I, I completely agree, but I was really curious on your reasoning on this because um, as you mentioned, you know, this this case is really complicated. A lot of ins, a lot of outs. Mm-hmm. So much of it goes nowhere, much like the mystery of the big sleep does. So I, I wrote this down when you first talked about this in General Impressions. I want to know, why, again, why, you know, the mystery at the center of the Big Lebowski is a successful detective story where you don't feel that the big sleep is pulling it off. All right. B- bear with me because I might lose my train of thought. But... Let's say that the 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 A plot for Big Lebowski is the mystery he gets drawn into to find uh, Lebowski's missing wife. Okay. Kind of in the way that a classic noir might tackle this. There's all these loose ends that he he goes around following up, and in a lot of ways everything seems connected, and some of it is, but a lot of it really really is not. Even in the dialogue, the way that there's always these like kind of reoccurring lines and like things that kind of crisscross around there's sort of this almost paranoid feeling that everything is connected in this great conspiracy but by the end you realize very little of it is and in fact <laughs> the whole missing persons case was a farce itself yeah no, like 
and you know there was there there was no money involved no one had any money no one was kidnapped everybody's bluffing and i think in that way all these dead ends bolster the point that the movie was trying to make and that that just that just isn't how the big sleep works although it is how the novel works right okay so so this goes back to what you're saying about the big sleep that it just can't commit to its source material it has to in, in being so freeform and not committing to a specific world outlook, it's done itself a disservice where the Big Lebowski definitely has uh, a positive ethos. An ethos. Yeah, <laughs> correct. Yeah. Cause, cause it's like we said, it is big sleep, a, a romance. Is it a mystery? Is it just us thinking that Humphrey Bogart is really cool in some way? It's all of those, but it's sort of contradictory, but the Big Lebowski, it's all of those in a way that is, that reaches absolute perfect synergy to feel like a cohesive film. I think that works quite well. The yeah. other thing is that all the, all the real loose ends in Big Lebowski do get tied up. Um, they, they might not go anywhere, but they do tend to, you know, finish. If, if Exam- that makes sense. Example. Uh, his, his thing with, with Maude, you know, she, mm-hmm. she, she's got her whole thing with her dad um, and, and his fortune. And then there's like the the kind of weird sexual tension that isn't really there, but it's being forced anyway. And then it turns out she wants to have sex with the dude. And then it turns out it's because she wants to have his baby, but not because she loves him. She just wants to have a child. And she's selected him as, for all intents and yeah. purposes, a, a perfect donor. Because <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't want to have to interact with the father socially. Right. <laughs> and... <laughs> and uh, and then it, it gets revealed that all the stuff with her father is sort of irrelevant because, you know, he has no money. He's broke. Mm. And and so even though all there's all of these like moving pieces, all these complicated ins and outs, they amount to nothing in a way that feels very satisfying and kind of complete as an arc for me. So if you had to put into words like what you think the intent of the movie or like the message it's trying to put out, what would you say it is? I mean, I'd, I'd have a hard time kind of really committing to one kind of thematic point here but but i'd say it's it's somewhere between what we've already said sort of a a commentary on sort of the complicated and even arbitrary pointlessness of life but at the same time you know the dude abides that kind of we just kind of go on and and we can be resilient and it's all right you know what i mean yeah. And and where I think this movie really succeeds is like that authentic human connection. You know, that yeah. that if so much of the Bogey Bacall romance seems contrived just to get Bogey and Bacall together at the end of the movie, like I, I feel that everybody who interacts in a positive way in this movie, it feels earned, even down to the mod relationship, which is, you know, a purposeful dead end to 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 get his baby and cut him loose. But um and man, I you know what I'm not I'm not even I was gonna say I'm embarrassed by this, but I'm not, but Within the space of a single scene in this movie, I, I go from delirious laughter to like a, a single tear. And it's it's the very end when they're committing Donnie's ashes to the ocean. We have the great the great eulogy given by Walter that, of course, turns into something about Vietnam and taking the young men at Hill 431 or whatever it was. Yeah. But um, and then, you know, that oh, that great joke of him scattering the ashes and they fly right back in the dude's face. Like you said, everything with Walter is a freaking train wreck. And you know, the dude loses his cool, but there, John Goodman just has like that really wounded, hurt look as, as the dude is kind of like shoving him off and telling him that everything's a fucking disaster with him. 
And then when he goes in and just like pulls him in for a hug, it, like I'm kind of welling up right now thinking about it because I think that that's such an, an authentically sentimental moment. Yeah, and I, and I think there is something genuine, particularly with those two characters, that, dare I say in some way, I mean, it, it's, it's poking fun at, but also seems to somewhat improve on that kind of convention in the detective story, where in most detective stories, you have these kind of, you know, uh, the saint with the gun, this guy that even though he lives in a seedy L.A. world, uh, he's, he's out to do right, kind of no matter what. And in this world, they're, they're drawn in by kind of more personal reasons that, that silly as they are, feel, you know, mildly believable that, <laughs> that the dude, the dude just wants his rug back. It gives him a, a real reason to go confront. And even, and even confronting Lebowski is not something he, he's, he's put up to do that, but it's, it's believable that he does it. And then Walter, who kind of is the real driving force behind getting the dude to do any of this stuff. He's delusional, but <laughs> but for real reasons, you know, he on the one hand making up for all his past failures, whether that's his marriage or even the monumental failure of Vietnam. Right. The dude seems to have kind of learned the opposite lesson from kind of the the tumult of the Vietnam era where he's just sort of a burnout. And it, it works really well, I think. I think it works really well as, as genuine motivations and genuine characters that can also be extremely goofy and absurd. And and that's where I think, you know, the movie is really successful in terms of, you know, how so much of the plot doesn't even matter is it goes back to what I was saying. Like if a character is good enough, I'll I'll follow him into whatever. And I think every single character in the Big Lebowski is just absolutely incredible. I you know, I single out John Goodman's performance as my favorite, but I love everybody in the cast. Jeff Bridges is amazing. Like both these guys should have gotten Oscar nominations for this movie. Yeah, Julianne Moore's amazing as Maud. Uh, um, what's his name? Peter Stormare as Uli, you know, even these bit parts, um, John Turturro as Jesus, you know, uh, again, uh, the complete like lunacy and how nothing matters in this movie, like is authentic, is really part of its charm. Cause like, I don't know what Jesus is doing in this movie. Like, I don't understand like on any sort of thematic level, like what he is contributing to the story or what message the movie's trying to put out. But I just love the way John Turturro plays that character so much. And that it's just like another one of these kind of false starts, like a, a, a conflict that doesn't really matter that, you know, that he's he's their big competition for the semifinals in the bowling tournament is is so good. And so, yeah, like I'm I'm just I love all these characters so much that they can just do whatever. Like I, I'll plop down for two hours of whatever because I don't really care about the kidnapping plot. You know, the, the fact that the kidnapping plot and everything else, all the other subplots do weave together really well is an added bonus, but I'd like, I'd still be on board for this movie if it was just a string of unrelated things like the, the Larry Sellers shakedown, which I think is like, I think it's one of the funniest scenes in any movie ever. It's, yeah. And another thing to speak to the, to the writing. Um, I, I do like that this movie is really good about giving you kind of signposts to remind you like what the goal is, how things started. The, the rug you mentioned, the rug comes back over and over. And at the halfway point of the movie that, you know, the dude has that great line where he's like, I could just be sitting here with piss stains on my rug. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what about, um, I, I just love to hear more of your talks about the writing and the direction. And I mean, we've, I don't think we've talked about this much recently. What's, what's your take on the Coens in general? Are you a fan? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> 
No, I I am. I I know I know you and I have had spats about Fargo, but I couldn't honestly remember if we talked about like anything like raising Arizona or stuff like that. Yeah, no, I I, I like the Coens a lot. Um, but I, I'm admittedly I'm one of those people that gets a little bit uh, bashful and shy when it comes to discussing them, just because I've I've been surrounded by people who are far more expert on the subject than I am. Right. But no, I, I really like them and I and I like them from particularly that era, kind of the you know, first half of their filmography in particular really resonates with me. And I mean I, I like them. I I'd I'd I personally rather just say it goes without saying that they're some of the most talented people working today. Oh for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I kind of bring it up just because the second point about, you know, you recommend the movie to everybody because of the expert writing and the direction. It's not that it caught me by surprise because I know how much we've both just gushed over the screenplay and the way the movie's put together. But I know that um, you're not like the biggest fan of like the overly wordy, like very calculated screenplay like that you get with the Coens usually or Tarantino. I know that's not usually your thing. So like it, it, it kind of surprised me to be like, oh, wow, that's actually one of his points. Yeah, again, though, I think because because of the synergy, the way that this all works to kind of one kind of peak point makes it quite interesting to me and makes it easy to stay invested. You know, you mentioned like the Jesus part, like that's perhaps to me stands out as like the biggest moment that kind of bothers me because it just kind of <laughs> veers way off track. But it is still at least sandwiched in between things that and and around things that uh that do have to do with the central plot. And I would say most of the moments in this film do there's there's that part where they go to that really weird uh kind of like performance that weird like dance yeah, yeah the the landlord's cycle yeah yeah and and like that is extremely weird and doesn't make a lot of sense other than it just sort of builds character and world although they are there discussing the case right and i think i think that kind of endless nagging of of the mystery even though the dude he doesn't care about it and he doesn't want to keep bothering with it it's always there and i and i and i like the way that he, they always keep trying to get on with their life whether it be bowling or or going to the in and out burger yeah and uh the case keeps kind of coming up and getting up in his face but meanwhile, when he does try to do some detective work, there's that part in Jackie Treehorn's house <laughs> where he goes in and does a rubbing of a paper, hoping he can get the like the notes that Jackie Treehorn had been writing. And it's just a picture of a dick. <laughs> and that, that's really great. And, and that's kind of my point. It all just serves uh, kind of the, the film's main point about kind of absurdist pointlessness, you know. And and to go back to the scene at the dance, uh, the dance recital, I like, and, and you know, I'm kind of talking about out of my ass here because I, you know, if, if there's anybody who doesn't know anything about the day to day in Los Angeles, it's me. But a scene like that really seems like the Cohen's commentary on like, well, this is the L.A. of uh, of today or, or, you know, very close to today. I know it takes place in the early 90s when the movie was released in the late 90s, but, you know, like. <laughs> There, there's no longer like the, the gambling dens, you know, and like the, the pornography shop in the back of the bookstore. They're like, this is this is where you go in like the seedy underworld of L.A. now is like these these really weird artistic expressions, whether it's the dancing or it's mods art gallery. And the um, even, even the, the musical numbers, I think, are kind of making a weird, surreal point about like the society that existed then and the type of like. The type of setting that like a Chandler-esque character would have to navigate through if he t if he navigated modern day. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, it, it's kind of like I can't quite put my finger on it. I can't quite articulate like why it's so good. 
but at the same way, like it feels very fresh and it feels very in control and on purpose. Yeah. I remember being um, somewhat confused the first time I saw this movie that it was set specifically in 1991. And I thought that's a, that's a bizarre choice and I don't really understand why, but in the context of the larger genre, it's very interesting to, to think about how, you know, the classic detective story either happened in the aftermath of world war one or world war two and 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 kind of the the i guess moral atmosphere of la at that time and meanwhile this movie uh you know walter and to some extent the dude are touched by the conflict of vietnam and the, the film makes particular reference to the conflicts in iraq around that time and kind of how these conflicts that the nation had been uh, wrapped up in and kind of the moral quandaries were so much grayer, more pessimistic and, and yes. pointless feeling. And the way that that kind of uh, informs the rest of the film, even though it doesn't make much reference to that again, beyond Walter's endless ravings. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's really clever and really, really uh, yeah, really smart and, and really great. Yeah, no, I, I love that because, again, like if, if the, the classic detective film noir is, is a response to, you know, the conflict of World War II that people are confronted with, like, I can't believe the type of e- evil that exists in this world. And, you know, how can how can we pretend to have morality that if, if the dude is going to stand in for like the Philip Marlowe figure, like, well, what he's what he's standing up against is not necessarily evil. It's a lot more of um if not incompetence, like ludicrous, you, you know, the, the Vietnam, Vietnam is kind of like a, you know, that's, that's kind of on us as, as history has shown. It is like, you know, we were yeah. kind of looking for a fight. And, and I think the same could be said of uh, the first Gulf War um, way back when, when we did the, the episode on Independence Day, I talked about that movie being like real wish for wish fulfillment to finally have a conflict that was like cut and dry, like they're evil and America needs a win because it hadn't had that since World War II. And I think the big Lebowski is also kind of addressing that like you said through the characters of the dude and walter and their cultural revolution and and to a certain extent even uh the big lebowski himself who is also always going on about how he stands on his achievements and no one stood in his way and he he also makes you know mention to the korean war and how it, it took his legs from them that everybody is always up against this backdrop of these conflicts the nation has been engulfed in but they never had quite the same punch that world war ii did yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the Philip Marlowe and, and stuff, they, they are they've gone through a war and they have a, a moral confidence as well as just their fast talking. You know, they they were taught that good can stand up against evil. And at the same time, kind of the moral movements post-war are what gave rise to these gambling dens and and uh, organized crime and stuff. But in this film, yeah, it, it's it's so much more ludicrous, so much more. uh there's kind of a, a malaise about it, about and, and kind of just a, yeah, just sort of a laziness to every character, <laughs> to every single character. Right. And 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 yeah, and, and again, I I just I really think it's clever how Walter and the dude are kind of opposite ends of the same coin. It's really nice that they're friends. Yeah. 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 To, yeah, get, yeah. to have to have the yin and yang that they. They kind of do like hanging around each other that as much as the dude is frustrated by Walter, like he always shows up to bowling practice, like he knows he knows where his responsibilities lie. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about you know, the, the movie's cult status. So my second point is I think this is the ultimate cult movie. I'll, I'll 
definitely put it above Rocky Horror Picture Show or things like The Room. Um, and, and all of that, I think, is is fed into by things that we've talked about, that everything about it is just insanely quotable, that it's it's all I could do watching this movie the other night to just not, like, recite the dialogue along with it, because I've watched it so many times, and it's always an absolute treat. But I, I mentioned in general impressions that there does feel to be, like, a genuine community around this movie. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have the feel of, like, that that feeling you have when you have, like, a hidden treasure, you know, where it's like, oh, you and a few hundred other people know about this. This movie is now insanely popular. Like it's it's definitely grown from where it started out with, which was um, not very well received. This is the movie that follows Fargo, which um, is the only movie of the Coens that per- for me personally that beats out Big Lebowski ever just so because I think they're both masterpieces. But yeah, Big Lebowski, again, um, I think was just way too much of a tonal shift. And, and the same things happened to them because we, we talked about Raising Arizona on the show before. And we talked about it being this outlandish polar opposite of the movie that came before it, that they went from like the hard boiled, like detective story of Blood Simple to this like Looney Tunes come to life of Raising Arizona. And then that's kind of almost the same thing here, that Fargo is really a tragedy in the classical sense. And then to switch it to go to Big Lebowski, where there's just so many loose ends. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people fought against the pointlessness of it, that everything is a dead end and doesn't matter and that people were missing that that's the point. And I like that time has been kind to it, that people have understood that's the point of it and, and people have really grown to love it. And I, I really just think that there is something that feels good about being a fan of this movie in particular and knowing, you know, other people who love it just as much because it's, I don't feel that it's a toxic fan base. No. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I've been surprised at the, the community that surrounds this and I think it kind of goes back to what we've been saying about that kind of genuine humanness that is, you know, that, that, that just is injected throughout the whole movie. Even though it's this big, ludicrous, crazy plot, its ideas are, are so simple and so humanistic. And I think that's gone a long way towards making it have this kind of wonderful community surrounding it. And I think it also adds to the reason I personally really, really like watching it over and over again, you know? I think I'd also like to add, you, you talked about the quotability of the dialogue. Oh, yeah. And I'd say yeah. there's a similar quality to the visuals of it. There's, yeah. there's a lot of um, visually iconic things throughout this, whether it is scenes and the way they are framed, or whether it is individual objects, you know, the dude's... Uh, like what what is it like a cardigan that he wears yeah and his and his just general look is is instantly iconic it was recently uh uh touched on in avengers the newest one yes yes and and even i think what's so good is um even like really small dumb stuff i think has become visually iconic from the movie the the one i always think of is um in years past you and i have gotten together with groups of friends to watch this movie on an annual basis Mm-hmm. I, re- I really miss it. I wish we weren't so busy. We could we could keep doing that. But there's a shot in the opening credits of a guy who rolls a bowling ball and the camera sticks on his midsection. And when he rolls the strike, he does just like the little shimmy shake. That's a shot that people remember and look forward to and get excited for. And it's just like this slightly overweight guy, like doing a victory dance. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll kind of add on to that. I- I've heard people talk about. Um, I mean, are you aware of dudism? 
Oh yeah, of course. That's that's a big part of the you know the ultimate cult movie is that this, this spawns like its own legitimate religion. And I and I was gonna say I mean, I mean part of it is that there is an ethos to this movie. Just kind of the dude abides. It's something that you can kind of live in your real life. I think all of us relate to that feeling where life is sort of out of control and crazy and nothing makes sense. But you can kind of just roll with it. You can kind of just find these little simple things, whether that's a, uh, you know, a white Russian or a, a nice uh, rug, <laughs> just kind of these, just kind of these things that 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 bring you pleasure or bowling or whatever. So I think I think part of that um, is kind of infused into its appeal. But I'll also say something that I find really fascinating about this kind of dudist movement and kind of the, you know, religion surrounding this is the ability to have tokens um you know things like like christianity you have your crucifixes you know or like rosary beads or whatever what what have you you know many many uh religions have that and this movie kind of because ludicrous as it is it's still so grounded and human Mm-hmm. It's provided so many things that you can get a hold of in in your real life. I mean, <laughs> this sounds weird, but but it but it's true. You know, you you can just rock a pair of shades and a a big sweater and wear your flip flops or sandals or what have you around. I mean, that that's what I do. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I think it it provides some kind of tactile connection to this movie. This something like Rocky Horror could never could never really achieve. Sure. Other than other than through performance, which which it has. Yeah, I, like, I liked what you said, and I mean, it's such a classical idea, too. You know, it, Henry David Thoreau decides, I'm, I'm done with civilization, I'm going to just go build a shack next to Walden Pond. The, the, the dude has, like, the similar idea of, you know, it's just the small, simple things, and he doesn't get caught up in, like, the rat race in a city that is, you know, known for everybody is trying to hustle, everyone's trying to make it big, and, you know, the, the dude's claim to fame is that he's the laziest guy in Los Angeles County. Um... And and while that I think that helps with the comedy because comedies work when you feel superior to people, there is also something like you said that's that's kind of noble about him. That I, I would say if the movie has an antagonist, it would be the Big Lebowski himself because he is so much more like the dude than he's willing to admit. But you know what's what's evil about him is you know his his obsession with projecting the image and his you know just racking up all those trophies, those keys to the cities to prove that he's happy with himself when he's not. And then, you know, the dude, even after having lost, you know, one of his best friends can still just be like, life goes on. I think part of it is also that I don't think the dude feels superior or he doesn't really come across that way. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't need to be affected by any of this. He doesn't care. But I mean, you look at the things that he's interested in. These aren't cool or popular things. He's, he's sitting in a tub listening to whale songs, you know, like, (laughs) but, they're they're genuinely him and i i feel that that any of the characters in this movie that are framed in any kind of positive light that seems to kind of be their unifying um characteristic is that they are kind of just genuinely themselves which would definitely contribute to um you know even even walter who like you said is such a chaotic force but we love him so much and i think it is because he he is true to himself i think he even has the line uh, I can't remember the philosophy he's laying out because uh, I get too distracted with yeah. Cynthia's dog and <laughs> how it has papers. <laughs> I I would hope as we've been talking about this and quoting some of the dialogue that we ha- we have made your point about how this is 
one of the most hilarious movies you've ever seen. And and I would agree with you, but is, are there any other things you would like to say to drive that point home? You know, no, that, that point is just, it's purely, well, I'd say it's purely subjective because this is just a movie I, I really, really love, but I can say this is never a movie that I've shown to anybody who's outright hated it. I've shown it to people who were confused by it and then later came sure. back and said that sure. they couldn't get out of their head and they watched it again. And they thought it was funny. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I think if that doesn't have a, an all around general appeal, I think it, it really does to kind of people of a certain kind of age demographic, at least, uh, you know, who, who, you know, might not come out of the moral codification right after World War II. Um, yeah, and, and to to keep it back to the writing as well, I think the Coens are so good at, at making these comedies where they are just absolutely chaotic and ludicrous. It's almost like a cartoon brought to life, but they're so smartly written. Like it, it really is high comedy, and that's you know why why I think it's in my you know top three comedies of all time, if not number one. Is um yeah, like you said, it's it's not just like throwing jokes out to see what sticks. Like everything still fits into a, a character, a theme, or or a dead end that is making some sort of commentary on the setting or the, the, the film noir genre that it's kind of turning on its head. It, it really is like as fun as it is to just watch as like a cult movie that is great to get together with friends and just laugh at. Like it really is some kind of outlandish masterpiece vastly underappreciated in its time. But I think that history has caught up with it. And now I, like you said, I think you're hard pressed to find anybody who would say like they outright hate the movie. Yeah. And yeah, I, th- I think we've made all our points. I, I John Goodman's just so great. I, I've, I've peppered my love of his performance in this movie throughout. Walter Subcheck is just—it's probably so good. his best. It's probably his best performance, absolutely ever. I mean, and and I think we're both pretty big John Goodman fans. Oh yeah, no, yeah, he he's had a fantastic career, but this this is hands down like the one I'm going to remember him for. It's he, he's just so good, like you said, because he's not just like the instigating force that constantly complicates everything. Like he's a real dude and you, you understand like why the dude keeps bringing him along. Cause it's kind of fun, you know, to, to finally have the detective who doesn't go solo that he's got his partner and together they just can't make it work, which, which feeds into comedy, but also feeds into a lot of the really emotionally satisfying moments. So yeah, I, I think I let his performance stand on its own. It's so good. But like I said, everybody in this movie is so good. I don't think there's a single dud in the cast. I think the movie's, I'm going to say it's a perfect movie, actually. I can't think of a single thing about it I would change. I'm going to say it's a cinema must. Nice. So um, is there anything else you'd like to add to it before we uh, close this one down? Go see it. If you haven't uh, already. Yeah, I'm I think. Assuming you have, but vote for it to be a cinema must. Yeah, I, I feel pretty confident in Big Lebowski uh, getting that cinema must ranking. We'll, we'll see where Big Sleep goes. I'm, I'm pretty on edge about that one. I'm really interested to see how people are going to vote for it, but... Um, Yeah, all this to say, we are going to lay our arguments down. We now leave it to you, the listeners, to decide if either, both, or neither of these movies are going to make that list of absolute must-see movies. So again, to do that, visit this episode's post at cinemust.com. It takes 10 seconds to cast your votes. Um, That poll is going to be open until midnight on August 12th, so you got about two weeks to watch the movies, rewatch them if it's been a while, but we are very excited to see how you guys are going to vote for it and uh, all the comments you're going to leave about why they deserve the status that you vote them into. So, Anthony, man, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you putting the the monsters off to the side for a little bit. I thought that this was an absolutely fantastic discussion. Thanks for having me.
Anytime, man. We're going to be having you back real soon. It's always a pleasure. And we'll let, we'll let you get some monsters back in if you really need to get it out of your system. I do. Wonderful. Well, thanks, man. And um, we hope everybody will join us for our next show. We are going to welcome from the Casual Cinecast, Mr. Chris Reeves, who is going to help us look to our elders by discussing Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story and Leo McCary's Make Way for Tomorrow. This will be a potent mix of uh, slight comedy and ultra depression. Um, so until then, thank you so much for listening, everybody, and good luck in the semifinals. Mm-hmm.